This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. Most parents who choose to homeschool want to give their child a unique educational experience. But some parents abuse the system to cover up child abuse. Karen Auger is an investigative reporter who's been looking into this issue for the Colorado Sun. And hi, Karen. Hi, Ryan. I want to be clear that your report is not an indictment of homeschooling or of the benefits it may provide children. But uh, it does raise serious questions about student safety when the system is manipulated. Why did you start looking into this? Well, it was something that had sort of been on my radar for a number of years as, as a reporter at the Denver Post previously. Um, I worked on a lot of stories involving child abuse. And with older children who were school age, I just noticed a pattern a lot of times where they had been taken out of school uh, a lot of times after concerns had been raised or an investigation had been launched into the possibility of abuse. And so then they were taken out of school, and the reason given was that they were going to be homeschooled. And it just seemed like that was something that had occurred a number of times. And then this year in, I believe it was January, February, the case in California emerged, uh, the Turpin family of 13 children, I believe, um, who the children were found to be emaciated and had been virtual prisoners in the parents' home for years and years. And the parents had claimed that they were homeschooling as well. I suppose what separates this from legitimate homeschooling and important to the pattern is that the kids are taken out of public schools and it is under the guise of homeschooling. Right. Yeah, that's right. an important distinction, I think. And, and in most cases, that is, that's correct. I think uh, in most of the cases that I looked at, the children had been in school and were removed. And often that was, as I said, after a teacher or someone else at the school had raised concerns. And and yeah, I do want to make clear that this is not about homeschooling. This is there was no education going on in most of these cases. The the intent was never to educate the child at home. The intent was to, um, to co- cover up a, abuse that was going on in the home. And of course, the logical next question is: What kind of safety net or interventions are there? that can establish whether the homeschool is legitimate or not. You began looking at this issue in Colorado. This is a local control state in which districts, uh, to a certain extent, determine their own direction. What did you find when you looked in Colorado? Well, I found very little. Um, There is very little, if any, oversight of of homeschooling. There is very little safety net for these children. And again, this is the exception. But it does happen, and f- for these children who are at risk, there seems to be very little oversight. A state official, State Department of Education official, told me that if there were was going to be any oversight, it would be done at the school district level. So it is, and as you mentioned, Colorado is a, is a home rule state. So all of these uh, interventions or follow-ups are left up to the individual districts. And it can vary greatly, as you might imagine, from a, from one district to another, depending on the size of the district, the resources they have, things like that. And you reached out to some districts, and what yes. did you learn about the oversight they have? Over well, as, as I said, it varies. And typically, but I think the one thing I can say about the one consistent thing is that it there's very little of it. Um, just it is up to districts to follow up if they see, uh, for example, uh, well, homeschooling families are required to submit standardized tests, nationally approved standardized tests periodically, and they submit those to the district they are registered with. 
it is up to the district to follow up on whether those scores are indicative that there might not be a lot of education going on or not. Um, It is also up to the district to just initiate any kind of follow-up. I found very little instance where any kind of follow-up had been initiated by a district. And most most districts told me that they had never taken steps to revoke a family's uh, permission to homeschool. And so a family has to notify a district if they want to homeschool a child. What what are the intricacies of that? Uh, if you're taking a child out of a school, you have to notify the school that they are that they had been enrolled in that you are removing that child. Okay. And then you have to notify a district, and it can be any district in the state, of your intent to homeschool. So it's two different steps. The first is that you are that you are taking the child out of school. The second is that you intend to homeschool. The second step is where there's so, there's a great deal of leniency in Colorado. You can notify, as I said, any district. It doesn't have to be the district you live in or the district your child had previously attended school in. It could be a district across the state. Yes. Interesting. You report that as of August 1st, Denver Public Schools had 359 registered at-homeschooled students. Yes. And no record of that district initiating a follow-up of a child removed from school to assure instruction was occurring or to verify a child's safety. There is there is nothing either in state law or in most of the districts that I spoke to there is no automatic trigger. If a child is removed for uh, removed from school and that child has been in the past the subject of a dependency or neglect investigation. And that's an important pairing, important right. distinction there. With both. There is no automatic mechanism for follow-up with those children to make sure that they are safe. Now, I want to say this is more than just anecdotal. It's more than just your observations of what happened in California, uh, because you cite a 2014 national study that reviewed cases of severe and fatal child abuse. And it found that 47% of the victims had been removed from school to be homeschooled. Presumably, that tells us that this is a cover abusers use with some frequency. What kinds of cases did you find in Colorado? Well, there were several. Um, First of all, several years ago, I think in 2013, I was part of a group at the Denver Post that looked into... um, child fatalities in Colorado. And most of those occurred with very young children. Most most severe and fatal child abuse occurs with very young children, toddlers and infants. Um, but of those who were school-aged, there, was a, there were a significant number uh, that had been removed from school and were being homeschooled. There, were, there are several high-profile cases in Colorado. Uh, one was the J- Amanda Joloff, who was prosecuted after her child was found um, he had escaped from the room where she kept him virtually tied up, and he was found, you know, foraging for food and, and crouching under a neighbor's porch. Um, and there was also the um, Chandler Grafner case, in, I think, in 2007 in Denver, where he was removed specifically after um, a school had made a number of reports of concern about bruising and marks on the child. Um, he was coming to school in December without shoes on, and he was removed from a Denver public school, and a few months later, um, starved to death, basically. And in both those cases, the homeschooling 
uh, sort of excuse was used yes. by these parents. And, uh-huh. and there was no evidence that any homeschooling took place. You have found that only two states require background checks on adults who provide in-home education. Colorado is not one of them. Right. Uh, but on the other hand, privacy is a big part of this debate. I mean, it you, is. you spoke with James Mason, an attorney for the Homeschool Legal Defense Association. That organization represents 80,000 member families across the U.S., including some 2,000 here in Colorado. And he told you, quote, horrific cases create horrific law and says it's it's not fair to scrutinize families who homeschool because of isolated cases of abuse. Right. What, what do you say to that? And I wonder what kind of reaction you've gotten to the reporting. Uh, well, a lot of angry homeschooling families uh, who... Uh, but again, this is not intended as as you know an attack on those who legitimately are homeschooling their their children. Uh, you know his reaction, and I and I think his reaction is indicative of this of the stand that uh, homeschooling advocates have taken any time there has been any attempt to to strengthen the, the laws or the safety net is that it's an intrusion, it's an invasion of privacy, and that it is not fair because the vast majority of them are doing it the best they can to, to educate their children and have no intention of abusing their children. And they should not be required to uh, exchange their privacy for the safety of a very few. It seems though that a law might be narrowly tailored to those parents who withdraw their children from a particular district and who have had cases or reports of alleged abuse. Well, a number of the child advocates I talked to seem to think that that would be a good idea. That uh-huh. is certainly in the case of a child who has been um, the subject of an investigation regarding abuse, that there should be some kind of automatic follow-up with when those child children are removed from school. California attempted something like this, but I think it was not successful. California attempted, uh, after the Turpin case, they did um, introduce legislation that would have required an annual visit, among other things, an annual visit by someone outside the family, someone who would be a mandatory reporter, like a teacher or a healthcare professional, with a child at least once a year. And that met with fierce opposition by the homeschooling advocates, and the, the legislation was defeated. Thank you for sharing your reporting with us. Thank you. Karen Auger is an investigative journalist who filed a special report for the Colorado Sun on the relative lack of regulation in Colorado to ensure children schooled at home are being taught in a safe environment. Elections aren't just about whom to vote for, they're also about who can vote. And this election, the state is making sure everyone who can vote gets the chance to. That includes people behind bars and on parole. This time on Purplish, CPR's political podcast, what's behind this effort and what impact it could have beyond the election. Purplish host Sam Brash is joined this time by CPR's criminal justice reporter, Allison Sherry. Hey, so um, just we're going up into a secured area. So I need to make sure you guys don't have any kind of weapons or anything on you that um, can be used against you or our staff. Last week, I went to Denver's uh, downtown detention center. It's one of the biggest jails in the state. It's this big, gray, blocky building on West Colfax. So once we go up on the floor, I mean, at any time, we can have some kind of emergency up there. And if we do, just follow my lead. I'll tell you everything you guys need to do, okay? I don't plan on nothing happening, but we never know. Allison Cherry is Colorado Public Radio's justice reporter. She visited this jail to see something pretty remarkable, a voter registration drive. 
Thanks. No sweat. So I spend a lot of time in jails, especially rural jails. For, for your beat, right? Because you're covering <laughs> issues in these jails. Yes, yes, exactly. Because of my beat, not because I've been sentenced to anything. And Denver's facility isn't nearly as run down as most places. It's actually pretty new. It was built in 2010. There are reclaimed wood walls in the cafeteria. There's lots of natural light. Uh, there's basketball courts attached to every pod. The bathrooms looked nice and new and clean. And this push to register inmates, I mean, how does something like that even work in jail? All right, gentlemen, we was here this morning. We had the opportunity to share. Well, it was actually pretty cool. You know, it's a joint effort by local criminal justice reform advocates and the Denver Clerk and Recorder. And it's pretty straightforward. You know, they stand in front of the inmates. Your civil right, your constitutional right to register to vote and vote. And ask if anyone wants to register to vote. And they have pieces of paper and clipboards and that's it. Again, here's why it's important. 2018, a midterm election, marks a very important election year for you guys, right? Colorado, you get to decide who the next governor will be in Colorado. That's Justin Cooper. He's the deputy director of the Colorado Criminal Justice Reform Coalition. Our team is here to get you registered to ensure that you receive your ballot to vote in this year's election. So he was standing in this thing called a pod, and it's this open area split into two levels. It's basically where all of the people in jail spend their days um, exercising and, and hanging out. Some of the guys he was talking to were ignoring him. They were reading books or sleeping. But most of them were standing above kind of on this balcony-like thing on the second floor or on the first floor um, listening to him as he gave this kind of rousing stump speech. Even though you're confined behind these walls, your voice is not confined. And these people in the Denver jail, are they actually eligible to vote? Yeah, you know, most of them are. This is a jail, not a prison. The prison's run by the state, uh, the Department of Corrections. And prisons are mostly where convicted felons are serving out their sentences, um, longer sentences, you know, years. And jails, they're run by county sheriffs. And people who are in jails are either pretrial, they haven't been convicted of anything, they're just sitting there, maybe can't post a bond, or they're serving shorter sentences for misdemeanors. Both of those categories of people, if you're serving time for a misdemeanor or you're pretrial, haven't been convicted of anything, you can definitely vote in Colorado. And did most of the people in this jail realize that? Did they know that they would have the opportunity to vote this year? No, and that was the big point of this effort. You know, it seemed like a lot of the people in jail were surprised that they had the right to vote. No. Did you not know? I didn't, I didn't know because I, I had two prior felony convictions, but I'm no longer, I mean, I had done the time and stuff for them. And how else would they ever be able to register to vote unless someone brought their voter registration to them? I mean, they're confined. That's the whole point. Did you see people actually register to vote? Yeah. They were all gathering around these tables, filling out voter registrations. And there was this one guy I talked to named Armid Hinkle. I'm a veteran. Um, I also am um, a member of the LGBTQ community as well. Um, and our vote, my vote, and everyone's vote means so much right now. And he really feels like he has a lot at stake personally in this election. I'm currently in this situation here, and I'm dealing with um, PTSD and other, other issues. And the way that, again, different parties view that um, really impacts my life greatly right now. Um, and so... It's not just a, a chance, it's not just a time just to vote or not vote or my vote doesn't count. My vote is, is everything right now to me.
And this effort, it's much bigger than just that one voter drive I attended in the Denver jail. There are a couple of things that happened on this front in the last year. One is there was a new law that passed in the state legislature earlier this year that allows people to pre-register to vote when they're serving uh, a sentence on parole. So when you're on parole, you can't vote. But the minute that you get off parole, if you pre-register, you're eligible to vote. Makes it kind of easy. The second thing that happened was there was this directive from Secretary of State Wayne Williams' office to all of the 64 sheriffs in the state to say, hey, sheriffs, you need to work with your county clerks and educate voters in jail about their rights and come up with some plan to let them register to vote if they want to. It's a pretty big effort. So this week on Purplish, busting the felon voting myth in Colorado. The state is working overtime to make sure people inside the criminal justice system and the people coming out of it understand their voting rights. Why that has support from Democrats and Republicans. And how much that coalition is really willing to do to re-enfranchise felons. Across the country, 6 million people can't vote due to a criminal record. But those people aren't evenly divided between the states. Here in Colorado, only about 20,000 people can't vote because they're either in prison or on parole for a felony sentence. That's according to the State Department of Corrections. Some states have far, far greater numbers. And the worst state of all concerning this and arguably everything else is Florida. Around (laughs) one and a half million of its citizens, nearly 10% of its adult population, have completed sentences for felony convictions but still can't vote. Florida bans anyone with a felony conviction from voting for life. Only a state board can reinstate someone's right to vote. On the other end of this issue are states like Maine and Vermont. Felons in those states never lose their right to vote, even while they're incarcerated. Most other states land somewhere in the middle. They reinstate voting automatically at some point after a criminal conviction, maybe after someone leaves prison, or in Colorado's case, when someone gets off of parole. But here's the thing. Many people think ex-felons can't vote in Colorado. And perception matters here, because if someone doesn't think they can vote, they probably won't try. The myth is that if you have a criminal record, that you cannot vote in our state. In Colorado, it's just not true. This is Justin Cooper with the Colorado Criminal Justice Reform Coalition. He's the same guy you heard registering voters in the Denver jail. Contrary to popular belief in Colorado, criminal record does not matter. What does matter is your status in the justice system. Status as in whether you're serving a sentence or not. If you're serving a felony sentence in Colorado, you can't vote. If you aren't, you can. What that means is there's only two populations right now that cannot register to vote and vote, and those are folks who are currently on parole, or if you're serving a sentence in confinement for a felony conviction. Let's just hammer this one. In Colorado, the only people who can't vote due to a criminal conviction are felons who are currently in prison or felons released on parole. That means people awaiting trial can vote, people on probation can vote, and people who've only been convicted of a misdemeanor can vote. The problem, says Cooper, is that people just don't know that. There's actually data on that. We just recently commissioned a poll. That poll found that 40% of Coloradans weren't sure if people with criminal records could vote. And that number gets higher when you look at people of color. 
A separate CCJRC survey focused on just African-American voters in Colorado and found that 67 percent of people believed you could not vote with a criminal record. Cooper's organization runs a campaign to teach people all this stuff, and it has a pretty clever name, Voting with Conviction. We have trained voter registration drives. We've trained local elected officials. We've trained nonprofits on this information. We offer the trainings and public education material for free because, again, this is already what we call the invisible voting block, a marginalized voting block that is eligible to register to vote. But if they receive the wrong information, they are at risk. At risk not just of missing an election, a parolee who tries to vote in Colorado is at risk of being charged with voter fraud. We actually haven't saw that in Colorado that people have actually been charged. But yes, if they register to vote and they are not eligible, they risk the chance of being charged with a Class 5 felony. Um, But that is a probability, and that's why this education is so important. Cooper isn't on its own with this effort anymore, though. The state started to get involved. New policies aim to make sure that when people leave the criminal justice system, they know they can vote, and they have the opportunity to register to vote. That's the hope behind the legislation, right? That's the hope behind um, some of the policy strategies, is that that education is provided by these institutes, right? By the local um, criminal justice agencies. And the legislation does that in a couple of ways. First, it allows parolees to pre-register to vote. And so it's very similar to in Colorado, we have a law on the books that says if you're 16 years old, you can pre-register, but you can't vote until you're 18. The law also enlists the help of parole and probation officers in teaching people about their voting rights. Now, when someone becomes eligible, or if they're already eligible, they have to be told. Someone has to say, hey, you, you can vote now. And here's how to register. So this was our way from a legislative standpoint to say, okay, we have to continue to chip away at providing a meaningful opportunity for people to engage in voting. And there's one more piece to all of this. The Colorado Secretary of State's office has taken a separate step to help people vote in jail. Remember, jail isn't prison. It's where people usually await trial or serve out misdemeanors. So mostly, they're eligible. The new rules aim to make sure inmates understand that. Rulemaking that mandates all county jails have to provide a meaningful opportunity and a process for people who are eligible to vote. And I know all of this might sound bureaucratic and, like, not a huge deal. I mean, the underlying rules about who can vote and who can't haven't changed. There's just more being done to make sure people understand those rules. But Cooper says it matters, not just because it might help turn out new voters or get communities of color more involved in elections or just do away with risky confusion about state law. He says it might actually stop people from returning to prison. What we do know is that people who are involved in the criminal justice system that are eligible, that register to vote, studies and research out there that said it also decreases recidivism. Meaning people who vote are less likely to commit another crime. Really. One 2012 study estimates that prisoners in states that restore voting rights upon release are about 10% less likely to reoffend. Now, that could just be a correlation. It's not clear if voting, all on its own, fights crime. But from his own experience, Cooper thinks it does something. For a long time, I didn't think that I could vote. 
right? When I was growing up, I had, you know, small stints of personal involvement in the system, nothing major, but, you know, I subscribe to that, that myth that, oh, well, since I have been impacted by the system, I can't vote. I didn't really exercise my right to vote to my late 20s after college and really starting to understand the importance of uh, government and politics. And so it's personal for me to make sure that people in similar situations, people coming out of poverty, people involved in the system who think they can't do anything, that they can't make change. It's not true. And that's the message he takes into Denver jails when he's registering people who are incarcerated and eligible to vote. While we're in the jails registering people, we're getting standing ovations, applause, people thanking us for just coming to talk to them about their rights. Thank you. Let's hear it. They get to see, you know what, actually people care about my rights. Everybody should have the right to vote. It doesn't matter what echelon of society you live in. People make mistakes. I mean, um, People care about me returning as a productive citizen. When we come back, Sam looks at why the debate over felon voting rights in Colorado hasn't split along party lines as it has in other states. Here, Republicans have helped ensure that people who've had trouble with the law don't have trouble voting. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. They said, go, go see Dr. Dahl. I'm Carla Walker from Colorado Public Radio Classical, and that's conductor and lecturer Scott O'Neill, my co-host in the CPR Performance Studio for a new podcast exploring the life and work of one of the great composers, Sergei Rachmaninoff. Rachmaninoff may be the best example, maybe the only example, of a composer who overcame severe writer's block with the help of hypnosis. He'd walk down the street to Nikolai Dahl's house, lie back in a deep, comfortable armchair, and Dahl would speak to him in this soft, hypnotic voice. You will begin to write your concerto. You will work with great facility. The concerto will be of an excellent quality. Hypnosis worked. Rachmaninoff was able to write his second piano concerto, the middle movement of which is absolutely stunning. It starts in this still, dark C minor. And very quickly, it turns to a warm, comforting E major. For CPR's great composers wherever you get your podcasts, and thanks to CPR's supporting members who make digital content like this possible. Learn more at CPR.org. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. It's a priority for this state, making sure everyone who can vote knows that's actually the case, including people in jail. But should the right to vote include felons? We continue now with Purplish, the political podcast from CPR. Host Sam Brash looks at what could be next in Colorado when it comes to inmates and elections. The bill we're talking about this episode, the one that gives parolees in Colorado the chance to pre-register to vote, it has a redemption story of its own. It died and was resurrected. And that's not something that happens very often at the Capitol. Let me explain. Senate Bill 150 ran into trouble at its very first committee hearing. It had Republican and Democratic sponsors. But Republicans on the panel, they weren't so sure about it. If 
someone is off parole and really wants to vote, it should be their responsibility. At first, the bill died on a party-line vote, with Republicans in opposition. Uh, Senate Bill 150 fails. Then, a day later, one of those Republicans decided to revive it. Uh, Senator Hill. Thanks, Madam Chair. I know we had some good discussion yesterday, and uh, having voted on the prevailing side of Senate Bill 150, I move for immediate uh, reconsideration. The change of heart came from State Senator Owen Hill, a Republican from Colorado Springs. Sometimes you have to have the humility to admit that you don't make the right vote and marry that humility with the courage to change your vote, I guess. We want parolees to become productive members of our society, and we would be foolish to deny them the chance to prepare for the responsibility the Constitution very clearly gives them. In other states like Florida and Virginia, the voting rights of ex-felons has become a brutally partisan issue. But in Colorado, it has its share of Republican champions. Not just Hill. Secretary of State Wayne Williams is also a Republican, and he lobbied for this bill. His office has also moved to make it easier for jail inmates to vote. I certainly believe in the opportunity to, to serve your time and then go forward. Uh, to repent and change. Uh, And, you know, I think that's what most of us hope uh, we do uh, as we make mistakes. It's what we should hope for others. For Williams, some of this has to do with his Mormon faith. Certainly that shapes my values. And, uh, you know, as we work to garner support for it from folks that might not normally be opposed, we did talk about the ability of that redemption, that ability to come back into the fold. Redemption was also an important idea for State Senator Kevin Lundberg, a Republican from Loveland. He co-sponsored the bill that passed the state legislature earlier this year. It was actually one of his last accomplishments as a lawmaker. He's term limited and won't be back at the start of the next session. So can I say, Senator Lundberg, that I can still say that, right? Uh, up until the next, uh, <laughs> uh, the, the, the next assembly is actually seated, yes. I connected with Lundberg from his home studio. And a note to all Colorado lawmakers, if you want some goodwill with radio reporters, have a home studio. I believe that uh, anybody who goes through the prison system has a lot of strikes against them coming out of the system. And, I mean, we loaded up with, with so many barriers to bringing people back into being functioning citizens, uh, licenses that you cannot obtain if you have a felony on your record, for example, or hiring obstacles as well. Yes, I believe in personal responsibility, but I don't believe the government should be putting up additional obstacles for that individual to get back into society. This is not a big element of that, but it is a component to put people back on their feet. What do you hope that this says to someone as they're getting out of prison? When they meet with their parole officer and they hear about pre-registration, say, and regaining the right to vote, what do you hope that says to someone who would soon be completing a a criminal sentence? Uh, Two things come to my mind. One, I use the term redemption, which I think it helps them recognize that uh, they have paid their debt. Secondly, however, it should 
give them that sense of responsibility, which is essential for us to, you know, do the right thing when we are uh, living in this, uh, this, this land of freedom. What do, you, what do you mean by that? It gives the former prisoner that sense of responsibility? Yeah, it's, it's one of those components uh, of uh, living a good life, if you will, to, to understand that you have a responsibility to look after the interests of everyone through your voting privileges or, or uh, rights. And it's, it's not everything, but it is one component for giving people the proper motivation to do the right thing in their lives. I, you know, again, I don't think it's, it's the cure-all, but I believe it's, uh, it's the right statement that we make to that person coming out of the prison system. Okay, you're done. You're now a citizen again, and we're going to help you get back on your feet by helping you uh, uh, register to vote. How have you talked about this bill with other members of your party? I mean, have you said the same things we've been talking about, about redemption and and making sure that people understand rights that currently exist? What have you said to get them on your side? Well, to me, an important component is that uh, this is not a first step towards giving a convicted felon in prison voting rights. Because in Colorado, if you're convicted of a felony while you're serving your sentence, and that means either in prison or on parole, you do not have the voting rights of a citizen. That is a part of your penalty for having committed a felony in the state of Colorado. I uh, believe that that's an appropriate point that should be kept in place. And if, if we wanted to change that, I think we need to put it within the whole context of, okay, we are now reducing the penalty for every crime in the state of Colorado. Is that really what we're intending to do here? There are, again, only two states that never remove someone's voting rights after a criminal conviction. In Maine and Vermont, people in prison on a felony charge can vote. Justin Cooper, the activist from the top of this episode, wants to see Colorado move in that direction. Colorado has an opportunity to lean towards that full reenfranchisement um, or restoration of all rights, right, as it relates to voting. We'll see. We'll, we're, we'll hope to get there. I think it's an opportunity for Colorado um, to be a leader in that, in that sense, just like Vermont, right, or Maine. Which means this truce, this moment of bipartisan kumbaya around felon voting rights, could be a fleeting thing in Colorado. So far, it's focused on helping people understand when they regain their voting rights. A future fight could be about something much bigger, whether they should ever lose that right in the first place. CPR's Sam Brash on the effort to make sure everyone who can vote gets the chance to. Next time, Sam explores voting security to make sure ballots get counted and that hackers are kept at bay. You can subscribe to Purplish wherever you get your podcasts, and you can hear it Mondays through Election Day here on Colorado Matters. And we'll be right back with a burning question listeners had after an interview last week about grief. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News.
It's not often I avoid asking a question because I'm afraid of the answer. I mean, it's my job to pose tough questions. But I failed you last week in an interview about voles, a type of rodent. A researcher at CU Boulder is using them to study grief, perhaps one day creating a drug for people that could ease the pain of losing someone. Now, the reason neuroscientist Zoe Donaldson is studying voles Voles can form these long-term bonds with their mating partner. And what that means is if you can form a bond, you can also lose a bond. And this is actually really rare amongst mammals. So only about 3 to 5% of mammals have this capacity to form these bonds. And that means it's pretty rare, and you can't just use mice or rats to study this. And so by separating the paired voles, Donaldson is able to recreate grief in her laboratory and then study the voles' brains. Well, after hearing the interview, several of you wondered, are the voles reunited after the study? Twitter user Allison Buchanan put it this way, OMG, how could you leave us hanging? Did they reunite the voles at the end of the experiment? Or are they forever torn asunder in the name of science? Inquiring minds and broken hearts need to know. Allison, I get it. I even thought of asking during the live interview, but to be honest, I was a little afraid of the answer. Not to worry, though. We got it. So let's play a clip from researcher Zoe Donaldson. I actually haven't heard this yet, and so we're all learning together. Are the voles ever reunited? The short answer is that it depends on the experiment that we're pursuing. For instance, one of the things that we want to know is how long does a bond last after we remove a partner? And we can answer that question by reuniting the animals after different amounts of time to ask whether or not they still display an affiliative attachment for their partner. Okay, so it depends. All right. Zoe Donaldson, Assistant Professor of Behavioral Neuroscience at CU Boulder. She recently won a $1.5 million grant from the National Institutes of Health to study grief in voles, which may one day help humans cope. Colorado's construction and transportation sectors are trying to grow their workforce by reaching out to girls. CPR's Natalia Navarro recently attended a career fair funded by the U.S. Department of Transportation. Women comprise only 25 percent of the transportation industry and only 9 percent of construction jobs. Keller Hayes of the Hoya Foundation hopes to change those numbers. She organized the Transportation and Construction Girl event. If we grew the percentage of women in construction and transportation, it would take care of the workforce shortage. A couple hundred young girls and teenagers came to the event to try welding and operating heavy equipment and to learn about careers in male-dominated fields. Want to keep pushing in towards it, Kay? I came across union pipe fitter Adrian McCam helping 12-year-old Raina Janelle weld for the first time. Raina's mom, Cindy, was possibly more excited than her daughter. Having her have the opportunity to be able to experience some of the stuff that you never think about getting to do, she just got to weld. I don't know that she ever would have that thought of trying to do that outside of this. What do you think? Pretty cool, huh? Despite chilly weather, girls from seven schools climbed into snowplows, dump trucks, street sweepers, and semi-trucks outside the Renaissance Hotel in Stapleton. Again... 
Fair Director Keller Hayes. One of the things that we try to do is make sure that we have some big equipment there because when you're not used to being around it, it can be intimidating. And most young girls have never been around big equipment. Inside the hotel, dozens of exhibitors from community and trade colleges, the Regional Transportation District, Denver International Airport, and Adams County told girls and families about opportunities in their organizations. Christy Cook says she owns one of only two certified mason contractors in Colorado owned by women. Construction is composed of a lot of different things. So it goes all the way from your field labor to being an owner of a company like I am. And there's the labor shortage that we're all facing, construction labor shortage. We realize that there's a lot of the population that we hadn't done a lot of outreach to. So we're really excited to reach out to our young women. Jessica Varney is 18 years old and already a pipe fitting apprentice with Denver Pipe Fitters. I'll be 19 here in a few days, but yeah, by the time I'm 23, I'll be a journeyman. That means she will be a highly experienced worker and get a significant pay raise, 40 bucks an hour. To me, that's really awesome considering that I'm a woman in this field and it's mostly dominated by men. Varney hasn't always been interested in construction. As a sophomore, she wanted to take a cooking class, but it was full, so she ended up in welding. I like how straightforward it is. I like being able to work with my hands. I like knowing that I can change something Within a few seconds of me doing it, the feeling of the gun in my hand, it's very therapeutic to me. Barney says she sees her involvement in the career fair as her duty to help other girls. I think it's really important to get more women into this industry because of the finer motor skills that we have and that some women still think that they can't do it. But I love these kinds of events because girls really get to see that they can do it and it is possible and there's other girls doing it and it's not just dudes. this bus to where the throttle does not talk to the engine computer. And I start showing them what I need to do to fix this issue. Rachel Harder is a quality control inspector for RTD. She's currently the only woman in her department. I asked her how she feels about that. It depends on the day. (laughs) I mean, it's always hard going into a new shop because nobody's going to give you the respect. you got to prove to them that you know as much, if not more, than they do about this. Hayes says her initiative has seen results. She asked girls involved in a career event last year whether they had ever considered a job in transportation or construction. Positive answers went up 21% between the beginning and the end of the event. We asked, what do you want to be in your career? We get a lot of hairdressers, which is awesome if they are so excited about doing that. That's fantastic. I support them a thousand percent. If it's the only thing they've seen a woman do, then I'm not as excited. They need to have hundreds of careers to pick from instead of a handful. This was the second annual Transportation and Construction Girl event. Organizers have already started planning for next year. I'm Natalia Navarro, CPR News. Colorado's public schools could benefit from a measure on this year's ballot. And it's probably why we got several questions at Colorado Wonders asking why schools need money with all the money generated by marijuana sales. CPR education reporter Jenny Brundine unravels why pot taxes aren't what many voters thought they were. John Sawyer and I climbed the steps of the Platte Valley Dispensary. The DMV punched a hole in my Texas ID today, so I brought my sweet temporary Colorado one as well, just in case. Sawyer is an energetic, friendly man, new to Colorado. His job pays well, and he drops $200 a month on marijuana. Uh, One-eighth sativa of your choice, my friend. Sawyer breathes deeply into the little ball of green. Beautiful. Let's do it. 
and explains to the bud tender why I'm there with a microphone. Because I want to know where my wife's a teacher and okay. I buy a ton of weed from here all the time. I know, right? And I want to know where the tax money's going because it's not going into my wife's paycheck or into the charter school where my wife is a teacher. So where's the tax money going? Other people in the store hear Sawyer's question and they say they wonder too about all the money pot sales must be generating and that schools should be benefiting. That's pretty much what Sawyer expected when he and his wife, a preschool teacher, moved here a year ago from Dallas. I am supposed to ask you for a receipt, kind sir. His eighth of an ounce is 15 bucks, plus about four bucks in tax. Dirt cheap, in his opinion. He wonders about that $4 tax. That must be a lot of tax revenue rolling in, he thinks. She comes to Colorado. She's making 44000 a year, so a significant pay cut. However, Sawyer's wife has a bachelor's degree in engineering and is getting a master's degree in early childhood. She earns $44,000 a year. In Dallas, same job, cheaper place to live, she earned 70000 There, her classroom was new, well-equipped, with ample supports for young children. Here, her building is old. There was almost zero books in the school. So the couple put in $1,500 to buy classroom supplies. Sawyer and his wife are like a lot of people here, surprised to see schools struggling when they think there's so much pot money on hand. And Coloradans can be forgiven for believing the pot tax was going to funnel lots of money to schools. My name is Nancy Putnam. I was wondering... Nancy Putnam told Colorado Wonders that was her assumption when she voted for Amendment 64 in 2012 to make recreational pot legal. Putnam and I listened to a TV ad she would have heard back then. Let's vote for the good guys and against the bad guys. Let's have marijuana tax money go to our schools rather than criminals in Mexico. Vote for Colorado. Vote yes on Amendment 64. Okay, so just wondered what you took away from that. It was pretty vague. And it said, you know, to construct construct new schools or reconstruct our schools or something like that. Okay. Yep, something like that. First thing to note is not all of the pot revenue goes to schools. About 60% is for other departments, most of it dealing with the regulation of marijuana, like preventing illegal grow operations and distribution, and for other public services, like jail diversion programs and impaired driving campaigns. So about 30% is set aside for schools. But wait, it just isn't for anything schools really need to stay open. So teacher salaries, whatever that general... They can't use it for teacher salaries or textbooks or bus drivers or keeping the lights on. Some of the special pot sales tax does fund one-time grants schools can use for things like keeping kids off drugs, preventing bullying, promoting literacy and a separate tax on marijuana growers is contributing to a fund for repairing and renovating school buildings, fixing roofs, and occasionally building new schools. Kristen Hoffman from Evergreen gets it. It was supposed to go to buildings, repair, new schools, was my understanding. But she and her friends see that in Jefferson County, there's a half a billion dollar bond measure on her local ballot to repair and renovate old schools. That's why she asked through Colorado Wonders. Where is the marijuana money from taxes that was supposed to help offset some of those costs? Yes, it's supposed to offset those costs. But here's why it simply isn't making much of a dent for most schools. The growers pot tax has contributed about $40 million a year into a building fund that districts can only access if they can match the funding. That means going to voters. Compare that to the amount Kristen Hoffman's district, just one district, needs for school repairs. 
a half a billion dollars. And the amount schools across the state estimate they need to fix their buildings? And that is $14 billion. That's wow. what they say. In case you missed that, $14 billion. A new school costs about $25 million. So I just told you that the fund is about 40 to so $80 million. maybe the marijuana tax would help pay for a couple of new schools a year across the state. Now, this isn't to say Jeffco isn't getting any pot money. Remember the pot retail tax that pays for substance abuse and dropout programs, things like that? I tell Hoffman Jeffco's total amount. And Jeffco has received $2 million since the marijuana funding began. This is less than 0.3% of Jeffco's general fund annual budget. 0.3%. As I've been reporting on this story... It strikes me how people think this really thriving industry, marijuana, must be contributing scads of money. It's hard to grasp how little money comes into schools from pot. So back at John Sawyer's home, near his favorite pot shop. We have two round objects here. I'm trying an experiment with him so we can visualize it. So this is a chocolate chip cookie. Mm -hmm. And it's delicious looking, by the way. Yes. Can you eat this cookie? Yeah, sure. I'm a little against the carbohydrate thing, but I will. I'm winning Rome. I'm living on the edge. I lost my knife along the way, which is a little concerning. I do have a pocket knife in my backpack. I ask him to imagine the cookie as the entire kindergarten through 12th grade public school budget. And we're going to cut a slice to represent how much of the budget comes from marijuana taxes. There we go. And this will be your slice of cookie. That is 1.6%. Okay, very So it's 1.6% of the total... The slice of school budget pie from marijuana taxes is like the width of a number two pencil, 1.6%. So does that kind of surprise you? Yes, I, I do think that the surprising part, which is completely understood, is that I, as a user, a regular user of marijuana, and just seeing with my own eyes, made the assumption, it sounds like the incorrect assumption, the inflated assumption, that... In fact, if you took all pot taxes, the slice it makes up of the entire state budget, not just schools, is the width of a stick of spaghetti, 0.78%. Let's be clear, schools are happy with whatever they can get from pot taxes, but it doesn't fund what schools say they really need money for. And that's money to increase teacher salaries, lower class sizes, pay for mental health supports, and buy updated textbooks. So that's why you'll continue to see schools seeking money, like Measure Amendment 73 that voters will see on their ballot. I'm Jenny Brendine, Colorado Public Radio News. Now, if you want to know where all the pot money goes in Colorado, we have spelled it out at CPR.org. And what else do you wonder about in Colorado? Let us know and we'll try to find the answer. Go to CPR.org slash Colorado Wonders. That's Colorado Matters for today from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner.